I was thinking about a word this morning. Do you know how um, in certain circles it talks about the pastor needs a word for the people? Uh, And I was thinking about the word and uh, I couldn't get these numbers out of my head. 28, 25. And I was pouring over the scriptures for a word. And then it came to me, Proverbs 28, 25. You don't know what that is, so I'll read it to you. A greedy man stirs up trouble, but he who trusts in the Lord will prosper. I just feel like it's time to ask whether that word finds a home with any of you this morning. (laughs) Funniest thing today, I thought, was that song we sang earlier on, the foes surround me on every side. (laughs) Ain't that the truth? (laughs) Millions of them, foes surround me on every side. It's in that song, You Are My Anchor, if you're wondering what on earth I'm talking about. F-O-E-S. Great. We're in Daniel, Daniel chapter 1. Claire kicked us off last week, did a fantastic job of helping us think about the rhythms that Daniel lived by and how he fasted. And uh, we're looking forward to our Daniel fast in just a few weeks' time. Two weeks' time, starting on Sunday the 11th. Forward slash Walking with Lions, you can catch up on everything. You can uh, listen to all that Claire said last week. You can find links to all the details about the Daniel Fast there as well. If you're tweeting, we'll use the hashtag Walking with Lions. And we're in the book of Daniel, and we'll be there right the way through till almost Christmas Time. So, chapter one, what here? And I hope shortly you will understand why. In 1605 BC, so 605 years before Christ, the great superpower of Babylon, the Babylonians, their center of gravity located somewhere near our modern day Iraq, the great Babylonians were the king, were the kings of the jungle. And the lions of Babylon were prowling all over the earth, seeking anything and anyone to devour. Israel up in the north had already gone. Judah down in the south was still hanging on. And that's where Daniel grew up. So let's get our bearings because we'll be in these history moments for quite a long time. This is blue. Because it depicts the sea. Okay, this is the sea. What sea is that? It's the Mediterranean Sea. Obvious, isn't it? This is a bit trickier. This is also a sea. Fantastic, isn't it? That's the Persian Gulf. And so, if you know your geography well, Jerusalem and Judah are, say, about here. And Babylon is down here. Whoa, look at that. Thank you, guys. Uh, And all of this has been overrun by the Babylonians. So they're like in charge, big time. And Israel here in the north, they'd been conquered. They disappeared some years previous. And all that's left is a little bit of Judah and the capital city, Jerusalem. And they're hanging on for dear life. And in Daniel chapter 1, 605 BC, the lions of Babylon arrive in Jerusalem and they take the best men that they can find, including Daniel, and they take them all the way 
to just outside Babylon, here. And there by a canal, about 10,000 of them, including Daniel, were living in a community. The idea was that if they could infiltrate these Jewish people with a Babylonian culture, it would make it almost inevitable that one day the Babylonians would be able to rule the whole lot. So Daniel, still a teenager, it's unbelievable almost, still a teenager, think about sending your kids off to university, almost a teenager, and he's kidnapped effectively, taken hostage, and placed just outside the city of Babylon, right in the epicenter of the Babylonian empire that was ruling the world. So it's not an understatement to say that Daniel was subjugated by a foreign power. And we read in verse 3 that the king ordered his chief official to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites. So some of the Israelites that were here just outside Babylon, are taken right into the city to serve in the king's palace. And Daniel is one of those very lucky or not so lucky men. It's hard to imagine the total dislocation that Daniel has experienced. His identity, his way of life, are all tied up with living in Judah and the rhythms around Jerusalem and the temple. And you can imagine, as would be true perhaps for all of us, that these guys developed a very strong siege mentality. Here they were, surrounded by all this worldliness. They thought, if only we can keep ourselves tight together, if only we can keep our heads down, shut the outside world out, keep going with our rhythms and our patterns of behavior, then maybe one day all this horrible stuff will pass and we will survive. And that's what they were living out when Daniel was taken. You can imagine them barricading themselves in in Jerusalem. And thinking, if we can just get away, if we can just get away with keeping them out, then maybe we will survive. You can see, I'm sure, parallels with our day. You see, in our day, there is a great world power that is out there in the world. And it comes in different forms and in different guises. We might talk about secularism. Or we might talk about materialism. We might talk about humanism. We might talk about sexual freedom, which, if you've tried it, isn't freeing at all. So we'll put that in quotes, just in case we're misunderstood. And perhaps many other ways that we'd identify the kind of world in which we live. And we, like Judah and Jerusalem, the church, sometimes are tempted to have the mentality, if only we just barricade ourselves in, if only we just keep going with our rhythms and our routines, if only we can just shut out the outside world, then maybe all this evil one day will pass and eventually we'll go to heaven anyway. Good. See, excited about that. So Daniel, if we can just have the slides for a moment, guys. Daniel 
was subjugated. But what does it mean if Daniel, who was God's man for God's moment, was placed behind enemy lines? What does it mean that God should rip Daniel out of this siege mentality and place him right at the epicenter of all this horrible worldliness, all this ungodliness? What does it mean that God repositioned Daniel into that place? So instead of cowering away defensively, away from the lions that ruled the empire, he was going to have to learn to walk with them. I believe the book of Daniel hugely challenges where and how God wants us to serve him. Can you imagine Daniel being placed at the heart of Babylon, the epicenter of religious prostitution, the epicenter of occultic practice, the epicenter of witchcraft, the heart of pagan worship? Can you imagine him saying, what? Here? Are you having a giraffe? How can I possibly serve you here? Why on earth have you placed me where it's impossible for me to live for you? Why on earth have you placed me where I can't possibly live as a Christian anymore? How can I flourish here? This certainly can't be your plan for me, Lord, can it? And God says through the whole book, well, actually, a little awkward, but yes. I don't think God said a little awkward. Shut up, get on with it. Yes, that's it. This is where I've placed you. God had called him to serve behind enemy lines. And that totally confronts our natural epicenter as Christians. Because the gravity, the epicenter that we have when it comes to serving God is the church. People talk about people in ministry like me that we've kind of left our secular lives behind in order to serve the Lord. So we've left all the horrible worldly and ungodliness and now we serve in this beautiful utopia called the church where everyone loves each other passionately and the world is all fluffy and then we'll go to heaven. Most of the action in the Bible was neither in the temple or in the synagogue, i.e. the church. Most of the action was out in the world. And the whole of Scripture, particularly this book of Daniel, not to mention the life of Jesus, challenges us as to where the primary place is that God is calling us to serve. If I say, what do you do for the Lord?, Most of us will answer in terms of a churchy type role if we've got one. And if we haven't got one, we'll... Because we've we've trained ourselves to think that kind of way. Daniel was subjugated by a foreign enemy power. How tempting for him to to assume that he could no longer serve God. If only, if only Daniel's singing, if only I can get back to Jerusalem where we can all serve God together. If only I can get back to that place, then I can carry But here, it's just impossible here. And we think the same. 
We live our lives under foreign powers, under different masters that don't share our values or support our goals. Sometimes masters that directly challenge our living for God. Imagine if the NHS, for example, is your master and you feel the pressure that you cannot pray, you cannot talk about your faith and so on. Incidentally, right this last week, my mum and dad have been involved in a, in a conference in Wales, that's the same country that won last evening, against England, 28-25. Uh, but in, in that country, they welcomed health professionals from all over the world, and it was to, it was, its goal was to think about how to get Jesus back into the health service around the world. And um, they've been given some uh, assurances in Wales, because that's nearer heaven, that if you're... Wales, um, 28, 25, that you will not be, listen to this, you will not be prosecuted for praying with a patient. How cool is that? Yeah. Just a note for those listening online, there was a spontaneous applause for the Welsh country just that few moments ago. And so we begin to believe what Daniel was surely tempted to believe in the world where I spend most of my time. I can't possibly serve you there. Because they don't share what I share. They don't believe what I believe. They don't connect with what I connect with. If only I was somewhere else. I could leave all that secular stuff behind me and serve God with all of my life. But I can't be a Christian here. The best I can hope for living here is to scurry back there on a Sunday and maybe scurry back there when my small group or my community meets. But then I've got to spend most of my time there where I just don't know, I just can't do it. Where does it feel like that for you? Where does it feel hard, even impossible, to serve God? Where does it feel like that? So what helped Daniel come to different conclusions? Firstly, I think it was that God had done it. Which is a bit alarming. Look at verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. So if we do that again, Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and then Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Okay, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. See, that's it. You see, he was a bad guy. Okay, he came to Jerusalem. Uh, Jehoiakim wasn't that great. Nebuchadnezzar came and, uh, and besieged the city. Who's in charge? Who's in charge? Nebuchadnezzar, it thinks, until you read verse 2, and the Lord delivered Jehoiakim. Who, who delivered him? Who's ultimately in control? Who's sovereign over the whole thing? The Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. Who's really in charge? God. God had done this. This was not outside God's control. God was still sovereign. And if God was sovereign over these events, then just maybe... God was sovereign over young Daniel in Babylon. Good thinking, young Daniel says to himself. And I think there was probably another important reference for Daniel. And that was his name. Names can make a big impression on us, can't they? Daniel, three syllables. Dan means judge. Er in the middle means my. El means God. God is my judge. Daniel grew up understanding that however massive the superpowers of the day were, whoever looked like the king of the jungle, 
The real king, the real lion whose roar commands the whole of the heavens was God himself. And Daniel ultimately was not under the roar of Nebuchadnezzar or any other empire or king, but ultimately under and responsible to and serving the roar of heaven itself. And if God had placed him there, God must have a purpose for him there. If you're tweeting, God has a purpose for where he has placed you. God has a purpose for where he has placed you. And so Daniel was subjugated by these foreign powers, but with only a few verses, he starts being subversive. Secondly, Daniel was subversive. He begins thinking about how he might subvert the culture, undermine the culture. But how does he know what he's supposed to do? He's never been to Babylon before. He's never lived under a foreign power before. He's only a teenager. How did he know what to do? The group here, meeting by the canal that it talks about, just outside the city, had reverted to type. They had also taken on this kind of siege mentality. They would thought, well, we're near this epicenter, but if we can just keep ourselves to ourselves, just carry on doing our stuff, then maybe God will come to rescue us, and when all this is past, we'll wander back home. And there were some false prophets in those days saying, hey, don't worry, don't settle down here, let's just huddle together, keep the world outside, keep the Babylonians off our back, and soon we'll get home. And Jeremiah as Andrew was reminding us, as if we'd spoken about it earlier, but we hadn't, Jeremiah was the book that Daniel had read or his parents had read to him that helped him understand how he was to behave. Because Jeremiah said, no. Think about it for a moment. The church adopts this mentality. If we go out into the world, we want to huddle together, keep the world off our backs, keep doing our own thing, keep all this bad stuff out, and then maybe we'll survive and the bad stuff will go uh, away. Which seems reasonable, but Jeremiah says what God says to the church today, no, stop, settle down, get involved. Look at what the prophet Jeremiah was writing that Daniel would have read and understood. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to the people here, how you should behave when you're under a foreign power, how you should behave when the culture isn't the culture that you want it to be. This is what the Lord Almighty says uh, to all those I carried into, into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. I couldn't do the plant gardens bit, but I'm all right with eating. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there, do not decrease. Verse 7, also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I've carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it because if it prospers, you too will prosper. God's word was this to these people and to Daniel in particular. Do not separate yourselves. Do not huddle together and wait to be rescued, but settle down, get involved, and work for the good of the city. What city? The city of Babylon. Work for the good of the city. Daniel knew that God's word said he had to engage with the culture to get involved with its life. 
So he threw himself, as we heard already in chapter 1, into the life of the culture, studying for three years the literature of the Babylonians. Verse 5, they were to be trained for three years in the literature, uh, and after that they were to enter the king's service. Verse 17, to these four young men God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. You, You might say, well, Daniel didn't have any choice. He was under the royal command. I think you'll find as we go through this book, Daniel decides for himself who he'll obey and what he will do. So he gets studying the culture. He gets into who the people are and what they are like and what makes them tick. He mixes and mingles with their movers and shakers, which is an absolutely horrifying thought for any Christian teenager. If I can just get it out there. What was he studying? Babylonian culture, what was he studying? Have a guess. Sorry? A bit of science... A bit of mathematics. But in the main, in the main he was studying witchcraft, the occult, sexual prostitution, religious perversion, because that was the culture of the Babylonians. Still, as Andrew reminded us, he would have read the scriptures, he worshipped, he kept his rhythm of prayer, as we heard from Claire too last week. But he immersed himself in the world and the peoples where God had placed him. This is hugely, hugely challenging. Our strategy for young teenagers is to keep them away from the ungodly influence of the world. Our strategy is to create a subculture so they don't have to mix with all the ooh, ungodly type stuff. We want to protect them from the unbelieving, pagan, nasty people that don't believe the same things that we believe. But we can only, we can only subvert a culture that we are engaged with. We can only subvert a culture that we are engaged with. And a dominant stream in churches... Western churches. I've been in churches for 45 years, and I'm 45 years old. It's to keep us away from the nasty places and the not-so-nice people. To keep out of the way of all that stuff, in case it pollutes us, in case we catch it, in case we become part of it. And the biggest drumbeat in church life has been to keep away from the world. Proximity does not pollute. It doesn't. If proximity polluted, then what on earth was Jesus doing with the tax collectors, the sinners, and the prostitutes? That's what the religious nuts couldn't understand. He's dirty now. And Jesus goes, no, I'm not. That's rubbish. That's a lie from the enemy that proximity pollutes. It does not pollute in and of its So we've not been taught well, I don't think, to engage. Christians have, and it's a sweeping generalization now, Christians have, in my observation, not got that involved in the social life at the office or the factory because we don't like the language. Or we've not got involved in the social club or the community because they drink too much and we're uncomfortable with that. 
Or they've not invested in the people around them because they they don't quite share our values. It's a bit difficult and a bit awkward and we fear that maybe we might get sucked into their values or we might somehow catch something or we just don't like it and it's so much easier to be with people that are just like me. And this path of withdrawing as a church, we've pursued. We, We keep our distance now. We keep separate now. And then sometimes we get cross with the world and we want to say something and we want to shout something to them and nobody's listening because we've totally disengaged and they couldn't give a monkeys about what we have to say because they've got clue who we are anymore and they don't really know us anymore and we don't really know them anymore. And the book of Daniel is a call to strive for a very different way of living for God. It's the Daniel way. and Maybe if he's not good enough for you, it's the Jesus way. Jesus totally immersed himself in the people and culture where he was placed. And so did Daniel. And it was pretty ugly where he was. Pretty horrible, the things he would have read and thought about. Really vile the things the people around him were engaged in. But God had put him there. If God puts him there, God has a purpose for him there. Where might God be asking you to engage a little more? Where have you said, I don't don't like all that stuff, I'm going to keep my distance? Where have you thought, actually, I'm just going to disengage here because this isn't really what I want it to be, and I'm not really that type. And for heaven's sake, if Simon sees me in that place, my membership will be on the line. But, a massive B-U-T, a massive but, single T. Thank you, Brian. But at the same time, we need to stand against the culture. Don't hear me say one thing without the other. Daniel engaged being with the people, learning about the people, learning from the people, learning with the people, connecting with their culture. And he knew that would not pollute him. Because he was a child of God and he was living a life of faith, praying and trusting and fasting and living and reading, trusting the word of God. He knew that decisions he would make and actions he would take are totally different and would absolutely pollute him and bring his downfall. So at the same time, he not only engaged with the culture, at the same time, he challenged the culture where it was wrong, which is just what Jeremiah had said. Seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you and pray to the Lord for it. Long for it to be different. Long for it to change. Stand against all that's wrong with it at the same time. So when the guys said, you need to have burgers, Daniel goes, no. We're not actually sure, all sorts of theories, why Daniel didn't want to eat that particular meat. Most likely is that the food, most of the food, was caught up in the religious festivals. And for Daniel to eat that food was in some way to say that he agreed or he was buying into the belief of the particular culture. But he says, no. 
Uh, he resolves not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asks the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. Massive challenge. Massive challenge to the whole of the Babylonian way of life and empire. He goes for it big time, even if he was going to lose his life. You can suddenly see why it's really much easier just to keep your distance. Then you never have to worry about it. You never have to worry about making that kind of challenge because you've disengaged, you've got yourself out of the situation. And and nine times out of ten, sometimes in Christian conversation, we talk about how we get ourselves out of the situation rather than be the challenge within it. Anyone know what I'm talking about? Massively easy to keep our distance and to feel good that we're kind of pure, aren't we? Not like the people in the world. Who are we trying to kid? Who are we trying to kid? To live as Daniel did is way harder. And if you're wondering why we need bother with all that fasting nonsense, that's why. Because the call to live this way of life is exponentially different from withdrawing and disengaging. Exponentially different from us just trying to keep ourselves to ourselves. And you know, as we pray for our university students that have just gone and perhaps gone before, made me really reflect. I was just so conscious, even as a teenager, so conscious where we got dumped and, and so on. One of, the, one of the hardest things for our young people is they suddenly get forced to engage with the culture and we haven't taught them to challenge properly because we've been busy helping them disengage. It's a massive challenge for the church. Absolutely massive. And every parent in the room says, let's have that experiment with other kids, shall we? Because we want to keep our kids safe. We totally get that. I've got four kids of my own too. Where do you need to make a stand and challenge the culture? Where? That if you were to re-engage, and the reason you don't is because you don't want the challenge, where would that challenge be? It's a real hard, not hard line, it's a real fine line that's hard to see. We need the Holy Spirit's help. Where am I engaged and where am I challenging? Where am I assimilating and where am I standing against? And there are, there are trouble at both ends. I can be so immersed in the culture that I challenge nothing. I can't do it. I'm so like them. Everyone goes, well, you're no different. There's nothing. I can't do it. I, I, I just, I, if someone looks on, they'll see me as one of them. I'm not challenging at all. Or I can be so busy challenging that actually I've quickly become separate and distant. Stratford Station earlier this, on this week, in the distance, we heard someone yelling. And instinctively, you know, it's a Christian sort of person yelling at the crowds going past. You know, you didn't almost have to hear the words to know it was a Christian yeller. A hundred million percent for passion, for longing and doing something about it. But in terms of engaging, a million zeros. It's really hard to engage properly and to challenge properly. And that's the beauty of Jesus' life, isn't it? Isn't it? And in your small groups, perhaps in your communities this week, think a little bit about the way Daniel did the challenge. It's so beautiful. It's full of grace. 
It's full of humility. Do you know when Christians want to challenge? I'm going to challenge you now because that's what I've got to do. But Daniel's just full of Jesus, really. So easy and graceful. Says, hey, look, mate, look, this is difficult for both of us. I'm not going to eat that food, whatever you say. And, and I know you've got a master that's going to be really cross. So let's come to, let's work this through together. Uh, really, 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 you know, empowering stuff as we begin to reflect on it and see what the Spirit might say to us uh, about it. And you want some good news? Jesus says all this is possible. My prayer, he says, at the end of his life is not that you take them out of the world, but that they're not of the world, but they stay right in it. So Jesus believes we can do this stuff. Jesus believes that we don't need to hide away there to serve God. We can serve God in all this space, wherever it might be. We can serve God whatever the isms are that are going on because Jesus says we can do it. He wants us in the world. That's where Jesus wants us. In the world. And he will give us success just like, thirdly, he gave Daniel success. Daniel was successful. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And finally, verse 21, if you've still got it open in front of you. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. Why is that significant? Cyrus was not a Babylonian king. He was a Persian king. The kingdoms will come and go. Lions will prowl and pass away. But when God's at work, his kingdom will never end. And Daniel was going to spend the whole of his life here. And he's one of the greatest men of God in the Old Testament. And he did it all in the world. An awful context. Amazing light. That song I was asking about on social media, the Ren Collective one, about the darkness is just a canvas on which God can show his brightness. The darkness just a canvas on which God can show or paint his brightness. Daniel was learning to walk with the lions, and so must we. Just three things very quickly as we think about how we respond. Maybe even as I've been chatting away, you just sense God nudging you about a new vision for serving him in the world where he's placed you. Maybe you've lost that. Maybe it's all been caught up with something else or just buried under a pile of other stuff. Maybe God's been saying, look, see why I've placed you where I've placed you. Or maybe you're already conscious. And one of the most exciting things about the last 12 months is all kinds of people saying, hey, I'm really getting a vision for why God's called me to that particular job. And prayer meetings are popping up and God's making connections and relationships left, right and center in our workplaces. That's really exciting. That's really exciting. It is really exciting. And maybe you're in that spot and you're thinking, actually, I'm behind enemy lines And I just want to know that people are praying. And in a moment, you can stand and we'll pray. Or maybe you're in that place and you think, you know, I know what the challenge is. And I I know I need to make the challenge in a loving and godly way. But I'm well scared. I'm not sure I can do it. And we'd love to pray with you too. So perhaps as the band come up, there's a a bridge in the song that we're going to sing that that says, so let my deeds outrun my words and let my life 
outweigh my songs. It's an absolutely fantastic phrase. captures something really profound about what we want God to do in us. That we want our deeds to be so much deeper than our words and our life to be so much richer than just what we sing. So maybe you've got a new vision. Maybe you just want us to pray for you. Maybe you know what the challenge is. If God's speaking to you in these moments, just stand now and I'm going to pray. Father, I'm asking for your Holy Spirit to come. As people have heard you speak all across the room this morning, I'm asking Holy Spirit, would you fall afresh on all those that are standing? Lord, I ask that as they have a vision for why you've placed them where you've placed them, that that vision would crystallize. There would be a sharp clarity, that fuzzy lines would become clear, that they could color it in, that it would become alive and real and tangible as you call them to serve you in that place. And for those that feel up to their neck in mud and bullets behind enemy lines just now, would love to get out of that ungodly, difficult place, that place where the values aren't shared and the support's not there and the people don't understand. But yet you know God's placed you there. Lord, give them strength tomorrow, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, morning, noon, night, through the night, whatever it is, Lord. May they know your Spirit's power. May they know that the Lord, the Sovereign Lord, has placed them there. And he is the true king, the true judge, the lion that roars. Lord Jesus, for those that know they've got a difficult challenge, a difficult word to speak, a difficult stand to take, and they love just now to disengage, to slip away, to avoid it. And yet they just sense in their spirits from you, it's time to make that stand. Lord Jesus, give them boldness and give them strength. In the name of Jesus, let my deeds in the workplace, in the world, let my deeds outrun my words and let my life outweigh my songs. Let's stand all together.